Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I'm so happy today to have as my guest Professor Steve Sanders, um, who teaches at Indiana University at Bloomington. He's a professor of law, also an adjunct in the Department of Political Science. He received his undergraduate from Indiana, his JD from Michigan. He clerked for the Seventh Circuit. Before he went into academia, he uh, practiced law at Mayor Brown. He is a prolific scholar who has written on all kinds of constitutional law issues, including but not limited to LGBTQ issues. He is also a great presenter and a friend. Steve, welcome to Supreme Mips. I'm so glad you're doing this, Eric, and, and I'm, I I, uh, I feel really honored to be in between Steve Vladek and Brian Leiter. So thank you. Well, thanks. You you belong you you, you belong in that group uh, easily. All right. So Steve, we're we're doing this on uh, Wednesday. The leaked opinion came out. You know more than 10 days ago now, but it's still being talked about. It's still in the news. So I guess I want to ask you um, first, what was your reaction? when? How did you first hear about it? What was your reaction? And what's your reaction now, 10 days later, however long it is? Yeah, I was, uh, well, I was at my sister's house in Chicago. I was visiting her and I was sitting in, in her base, in her paneled 70s basement watching <laughs> TV and, you know, just relaxing for the evening. And I get an email from one of my students, actually. I was teaching wow. first year con law this semester. And I got an email from one of my students, and the subject line was "Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade." <laughs> what? And so, you know, I looked at it and you know read the email, realized what happened, and then watched you know CNN for the rest of the night. Right. Um, did, uh, have you had a chance to glance at the draft opinion? Oh yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, so in in many ways, it is such an Alito opinion. You know, yeah. with lines like. Until the latter part of the 20th century, there's no support in American law for a constitutional right to abortion. Zero. None. You know, just like even as a litigator, I wouldn't write zero. None. <laughs> like that. Um, you know, I know you've had Linda Greenhouse yeah. on, and, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about a column Linda Greenhouse did well, maybe five or six years ago about Alito, in which she just, um, you know, really said he, he's essentially just there to serve the Republican base. He's a reliable vote for the base. Uh, he, he thinks strategically. And then when I had a chance to interview her for an interview program I was doing here at IU, um, I asked her, I said, you know, you basically accused a Supreme Court justice of essentially being a political hack. Is that is that an unfair characterization? She said, nope, that's basically what I was writing. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it struck me as a typical Alito opinion. It had a lot of sharp elbows. Um, it wasn't particularly well reasoned in places. Now, I think it's we're finally catching up to the fact that this was a first draft from February and is certainly going to have changed significantly since then. But, you know, of all the problems in the opinion, I guess I thought the weakest part was the addressing of a reliance interest. You know, in, sure. in um, Casey, the court talked about these are the things we think about before we overrule a precedent. And 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 he the, the clear fumbling, the clear blindness to the extent to which women and men have planned their lives around this and their careers and their educations and so forth around the availability of of abortion to, to to not have any sensible way to address that i thought was one of the most deplorable parts of the opinion yeah it, it really is a complete lack of empathy on his part for the idea that anybody could feel differently. Steve, I, I want to throw a hard ball, uh, a curveball at you on this. Um, mm -hmm. I've said this before on the pod. I usually send a very rough roadmap, you know, and, and, and then we talk about, and, and then we veer off and we're about to veer off. I want to come okay. back to the opinion. Well, in a that second. was about three minutes on the roadmap, but that's fine. I know. Well, this is related, but this is just a selfish yeah. detour on my part. Yeah. So I remember that column by Linda Greenhouse 
I don't disagree with it at all. Um, it sounds like you have some sympathy for her points <laughs> that she's making. Oh, yeah. yeah. So here's what I want to ask you. <laughs> and it's a hard, sensitive question. So I have felt that way, the way she feels about Alito. I have felt about Justice Thomas since 1993. Um, and I've written about it. And I have shown, I have shown uh, on my blog, Dorfer Law, and in f- three articles and two books, that Justice Thomas's votes, of course, he's not as mean. Thomas in person is a really nice guy. Everybody knows that. And he doesn't write opinions really in a mean, personal way the way Alito does. But he votes exactly the same way. I mean, there's virtually no difference between Thomas. 99.9% of 5-4 or now 6-3 con law cases, they vote the same way. I think, he's, I think actually he's as much or more of a Republican Party operative than Alito. And I've been saying that for 20 years before everything about his wife came out. Why doesn't Thomas, oh, first of all, do you agree with that characterization? And second, why do you think he doesn't get the same treatment from the press? I say that because people like Adam Liptak, who's been on my pod, everyone knows I think Adam is the best Supreme Court journalist in the country. I think with respect to everybody else, he's amazing. Um, but Adam and others have, have never, they don't see Thomas the way I do, which is, a, which is an absolute partisan Republican hack. Am I wrong? So I, I, I agree with that to a large extent, but I think the two are still can still be differentiated. Okay, uh, you know I, I know what you think of originalism, yeah. but at least I would say Thomas has a deeper, more stubborn commitment to his particular ideology, his particular approach. You know, for you know most of the time he has been on the court, he's been perceived as sort of off on his own project. He doesn't care if he's the lone dissenter. In that column we just talked about by Linda Greenhouse, she she said, you know, Alito lacks the sort of self-indulgent quirkiness that Thomas has. I right. think that's what differentiates them. You know, I think of of the uh, McDonald decision, which uh, uh, extended the Second Amendment to the to the states. And, you know, Alito wrote that opinion and, and he just, you know, uh, sort of straightforward, you know, we in, in, in Heller, we said that it's a fundamental right and it's a fundamental right as to the states do, whereas Thomas concurred. But Thomas was like, I would do this through the Privileges and Immunities Clause. I think the difference is that if you agree with Linda Greenhouse's critique, Alito just does whatever is expedient to get to the result. Um, you know, certainly, yes, they are simpatico idea- ideologically. I like to think that Thomas is a little more independent or a little more sophisticated if you consider originalism to be sophisticated. So, so that's that's what other others say. Uh, and I'm going I'm, I'm just going to push back a little bit because this is this is a this is my this is my core issue these days about the Supreme Court. It really is. Um, but we know Thomas is not an originalist. I and mean, we know he's not. I mean, he does not he does not vote originalist. Affirmative mm-hmm. action, guns, federalism, and every free speech case other than a case involving prior restraints, which he's never had, the court is not originalist. Everyone, without exception, we know. So I think it's actually worse. Alito shows us who he is through his mean, impatient bullying. Thomas hides behind this cloak of originalism, which does nothing to dictate the outcomes in the cases that he, you know, that he favors. So I, yeah. is that fair? Yeah, no, I think so. And, and I guess when I was using originalism to discuss uh, Thomas, I wasn't necessarily thinking of sort of pure originalism the way a lot of originalists purport to practice it. I was thinking of 
all of the sorts of uh, frameworks that go into that brand of ideological legal conservatism. Again, you know, Thomas couldn't get on board with the decision in McDonald because it, you know, essentially relied on 14th Amendment substantive due process. And he's like, right. you know, I don't believe in substantive due process. Right. We should do this through privileges and immunity. So I'm talking more about that kind of quirky insistence on a kind of purity as he sees it. Whether it's true originalism or not, right. I think is is not necessarily the same question. Fair enough. Uh, he did join the Glucksburg opinion on substantive due process, which did say that we have a right to, to refuse unwanted medical treatment if we're a competent right. adult. Now, he might find that through the privileges or immunities clause, so fair enough. Okay, one more thing about the Roe opinion. Um, so you know me, you've known me a long time, and I've yeah. been on record for a long time saying I thought Roe and Casey were wrongly decided, um, but no more wrongly decided than 100 other Supreme Court cases, you know, that I mm -hmm. would reverse. Um, I want to talk about reliance because I, I, I publicly said on Sunday in a podcast for the first time ever, I was wrong about Roe and Casey. Um, mm. So be be before Sunday, my position was Brown is correct, Obergefell is correct, the Pentagon Papers case is correct, and that's about mm. it. <laughs> Every other case striking down laws is wrong. Here's what I underestimated, and I'm wondering if this is a, a, a this is Siegel being Siegel, but I'm wondering if there's a legal hook for this. When you said reliance, I, I never bought the reliance argument in Casey, except for those women who who were caught in between before and after the case. You know, you know what I mean? Because a year for, a year after a year after Roe and Casey are overturned, we no longer have those reliance interests. But here's what I underestimated, but I can't find the legal hook for it. The symbolism of Roe. That's what I underestimated. The, and I was wrong. And I've admitted I was wrong. To my mother, who's passed, Roe was a symbol of gender equality. It was a symbol of the women's consciousness-raising movement, which she was involved in in the 1960s and 70s. It was a symbol that we're making progress towards. A, and, of course, Roe's about abortion, not I'm not saying it's unimportant, and say so is Casey. But both of them are basically saying we're going to live in a country where women are equal. This takes that away. Yeah. Is that reliance suitable for a justice to consider? Uh, you know, my definition of reliance interest is fairly broad. Now, I think what you're talking about is what also what Justice Ginsburg said that that the strongest argument in favor of abortion rights was an equal protection, uh, uh, women's women's rights and women's liberty argument. Um, but, but you know, when I talk about reliance interest, I'm not talking about the person who was planning to get an abortion tomorrow. You know, I'm talking about women writ large yeah. who have greater educational and professional opportunities and can plan their lives in the same way that, you know, when you get married, you plan your life and your property decisions and your children around the assumption that once you're married, you're going to remain married, that <laughs> marriage won't disappear. I talked about this in the context of, you know, pre-Obergefell, when it was possible to, you know, lose your marriage when moving from one state to another. I'm talking about fundamental life decisions that, that generations of women have made when I say reliance interests. That's well said. Um, I think it's decisions. I also think maybe it's a mentality. I mean, no. Uh, because I think I'll oh, go ahead. No, no, you go, go. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in a sort of variety of the living constitution, which is sometimes called dialogic constitution. Mary Friedman. 
Barry Friedman, yeah. And 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 I wrote something a couple of years ago, basically, you know, saying the the, the major gay rights cases, Lawrence Windsor or Burgethel, were a great example of dialogic constitutional interpretation in action. So one of the premises of dialogic constitutional interpretation is the court, you know, rarely gets too far out ahead or behind public opinion and public attitudes. And when it does, it gets snapped back. Um, there are ways of holding the court accountable. I worry that's breaking down. When I teach the abortion decisions in my constitutional law class, I start out by showing how remarkably stable public opinion has been on the question since the 1970s and how essentially the state of the abortion jurisprudence we have post Casey really has given Americans what a strong majority of Americans want. I think it's very dangerous for the Supreme Court to be stepping back from that. But on the other hand, the kinds of mechanisms that Barry and others um, said, you know, help keep the court in line, new presidential appointments of different kinds of Supreme Court justices right. or uh, the possibility of Congress taking action and so forth. Those are disappearing because when now when we have, you know, Supreme Court justices appointed by presidents who didn't get a majority of the popular vote, when the filibuster prevents the Senate from taking legislative action, when gerrymandering skews our politics, um, those mechanisms that that allow for constitutional meaning to stay within a sort of societal cultural mainstream are also breaking down. And I worry about that. That's depressing. Um, Barry has, so Barry wrote this for the non-law professors listening, and there are many. Um, Barry wrote this book called The Will of the People that, and his, and his, and it's, it's really good, but really long. And in it, yeah. he, he, he really does show how for most of American history, the Supreme Court is left of center or right, mostly right of center, but it, it's somewhere around the center in a way that isn't too dangerous and isn't the standard deviations aren't too great. Barry has said said publicly a couple of years ago, this new even before Barrett, that he's afraid mm -hmm. this is breaking down. That what has what has been true historically, is not true, which will eventually lead to a crisis. I think he's probably right. What do you think? I think so, because, again, the premise, the reason it's called dialogic constitutional yeah. interpretation is it's this idea that the development of constitutional law, you know, over the long run represents a sort of dialogue between the American people and the court. I mean, it, it's a variation on things that Reva Siegel and Robert Post have written about what they call constitutional culture. It's a variation on the living constitution, but it's this idea that the court um, you know, not for every single decision, but over the long run, right. listens and is sensitive to what the public and the culture want and will accept and are ready for. And with this particular group of justices, I really worry that we are essentially seeing, you know, they realize they can wall themselves off figuratively and now even literally from the public and sort of do what they want. Yeah, I think so. Um, which is one of the reasons all of my work has gotten much more popular in the last year, though <laughs> I think it was accurate 20, 15 years ago. But anyway, um, I I used to be an outsider to this. Now I'm more of an insider. Um, Steve, Your ideas when, have gone from off the wall to on the wall. Yes, yes, although Balkan wouldn't give me that credit. Um, so um, when the opinion came out in the next one to four days afterwards, I, I watched social media pretty carefully because for better or for worse, I'm kind of, you know, engaged in social media in a significant way. Um, and what I noticed was people were starting to say there were three cases that this draft opinion suggests might be in trouble. 
One was Loving versus Virginia, the best named case in Supreme Court history, um, uh, which 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 overturned the ban on interracial marriages. There's no way the court. I, there's no chance the court's going to reverse that case. That's my view. I assume you agree with that. Yeah, yeah, that was just well, because, mostly because Loving is. 80% a racial equal protection case right. that applies strict scrutiny and calls out white supremacy for what it is. Right. And then it's sort of, yeah, as this paragraph or two at the end tacked on about substantive due process, which are important because it made marriage a fundamental right in contexts other than race. But loving is predominantly an equal protection decision. Right. That's right. Also, the old Mark Tushnet, Mark's been on this pod too, the old Mark Tushnet test can you ima- close your eyes and try to imagine a New York Times headline? And if you can't, the court probably won't. Now, in a post-Trump world, it's not quite as strong. But right. there's no scenario we wake up one day and the New York Times reports, Supreme Court allows Alabama to ban gay marriage or something. Yeah. I, I mean, interracial marriage. It's never going to happen. So let's right. put that to the side. Griswold was another one, the case where the court held for the first time there was a constitutional right to privacy. It overturned Connecticut's ban on contraception for the non-lawyers listening. Um, Connecticut was the only state in the country that banned contraception. There's some angst about this because that is a pure kind of penumbra emanations due process case. But I don't think the court's going back on that. Do you? As a practical matter, no. I, I mean, it is kind of a, a an oddity out there yeah. uh, for, for, you know, everybody knows it as the case that first announced a constitutional right to privacy that Roe took an important step in basically rehoming that right to the fourth to the 14th amendment to substantive due process the penumbras and emanations i teach my students i say look you know inductive reasoning like that is a respectable legal exercise but it still remains a bit of a punchline among constitutional decisions but i agree i agree with you um although you know i think of what alito did in hobby lobby and you know, what the court, you know, there did there related to contraception. And I wonder, you know, around the edges, maybe. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, no, I think to the extent somebody has religious objections to, well, anything, they're going to, they're yeah. going to win. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, but the case that, so, I, but I don't think that's, that, that's not in the pipeline anytime. Overturning Griswold is not in the pipeline anytime soon. Right. Although I will say that Kavanaugh was very cagey at his confirmation hearing when he said he agreed with the white concurrence in Griswold, which did not involve the right to privacy. Um, so yeah. how Kavanaugh feels, who knows? But I don't think there are five votes. However, I am very worried about Obergefell. And um, this is an area of law you've written a lot about and, 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 and one of the leading experts in the country on. How worried are you? Well, you know, I, I wrote a piece about a year ago that I, I said nobody should worry. Obergefell is yeah. safe. Um, there, there, the, the, the sort of a, the, there was no indication the court had any taste for going there, even in the decision where Kim Davis, the Kentucky clerk who had denied marriage licenses, right. was sued and sought qualified immunity. Um, uh, you know, the unanimously the court turned that down. Now uh, Gorsuch was it Gorsuch and Thomas or Thomas and Alito? It was Gorsuch uh, and Thomas and maybe Alito, but definitely Gorsuch and Thomas. Yeah, had, had a statement in which yeah. they basically said, "See, we told you Obergefell was going to be a disaster for right. religious rights." But then there was a case uh, out of Indiana, right. which involved birth certificates, yeah. and the court denied cert there, and there was no dissent or no statement from the conservative justices. So I didn't see much reason to worry. 
Um, you know, my view, the way I teach Obergefell is that Obergefell is not about a right to gay marriage. We, we begin from the premise that under Loving and then another case from the 70s of Blocky, marriage is a fundamental right. And Obergefell, you know, needs to be thought of primarily as an equal protection decision saying, is there a sufficient reason for denying marriage to this group? Now, you know, I say, you know, you have to sort of superimpose this way of thinking on the opinion because Justice Kennedy's actual opinion isn't that helpful. I, you know, I, you know, this is sort of the wages of Justice Kennedy's airy, you know, uh, non-doctrinal sort of style of constitutional opinion writing that at the end of the day, we don't really know what Obergefell rests on. Um, I actually think in some ways, Lawrence, the, the case from uh, 12 years before Obergefell, which struck down sodomy laws, might be more vulnerable because wow. in Lawrence, that's just Lawrence is is the opposite number. It's the the antipathy uh, uh, to the Glucksburg approach, the sort of very conservative his, history and tradition based approach to substantive due process that Alito says in the draft opinion. That's the only way to think about substantive due process. Lawrence Lawrence uh, stands as a as a rebuke to that idea that substantive due process can be about evolving understandings and a, a sort of libertarian view of the Constitution, and it rests on sort of nothing more than that. Yeah. So I, I actually think Lawrence might be more vulnerable. States might be more interested in, in attacking sodomy um, because it's less understood and there's more of an ick factor than in going after same-sex marriage. Sure, is Obergefell potentially more vulnerable than I thought it was a year ago? I think a little bit. Um, it, 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 it depends, though, on, you know, what Obergefell actually says. What, where is the vulnerability? I think as an equal protection matter, um, uh, Obergefell is fairly safe. The attack on Obergefell would depend on the premise that the court rejected that same-sex marriage is a different thing than marriage over here, what the court was thinking about in Loving and Sablaki. If If we agree that marriage is marriage, and you just need to justify fencing one group out of it, that's equal protection analysis, and I think it's safer on those grounds. But I may be getting into more sort of law professory doctrinal <laughs> you know, uh, uh, analysis here than, than the court would even be interested in if they're going to be that motivated. I, I, I guess finally, final thought on this, it, although I think it was unprincipled and silly for Alito to try to fence off everything else and say, this is just about abortion, not everybody, not everything else. Um, you know, I, I do think that there, there is a point where going back to the uh, Mark Tushnet test, I can't imagine a world in which the New York Times headline says Supreme Court reverses itself on same-sex marriage. I just think it has become too mainstream, too well accepted. It has never had the sort of moral energy that the, the fight against it has never had the moral energy behind it that that abortion has had in that sense alito was not wrong about the decision about the issues being distinguishable we can thank one person i'm not minimizing in any way the work of all the litigators and ted olson and david Bo and everybody who brought same-sex marriage equality to america but one person gets credit for not having the kind of pushback that Roe got, and that's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, in my opinion, so Windsor, which struck down DOMA for the lawyer, non-lawyers listening, the Defense of Marriage Act at the federal level, on, on the, the week the court announced Windsor, 
it could have announced an Obergefell-type decision out of California. And yep. Justice Kennedy wanted to. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do both the same day. And Ginsburg agreed to a standing, a lack of standing opinion that made that case go away, which she didn't believe for one second. But she did know that if they did Obergefell, if they did a state, a state case the same day as the federal case, it would yep. have been too much too soon. Yep. She went around the country in the six months prior to that saying Roe versus Wade was too much too soon. <laughs> she yep. saw it. And you've now got, you know, latest Gallup poll, 70% of Americans support same-sex marriage, including now a majority of Republicans. Again, you know, this uh, road draft opinion sort of suggests that the court only cares so much about what Americans actually think about issues. Right. I, I just think they are different. Uh, they occupy a different kind of moral and political space that is same-sex marriage and abortion. Um, I, 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 I still just, under the Tushnet test, yeah. I still see it. I'm not as sure on this one. Um, and I, I'm, and my biggest fear is based on the last two sentences of Justice Roberts's dissent in Obergefell, which would basically, you know, rejoice if you're for same-sex marriage, rejoice if you're for equal rights, but the Constitution yeah. had nothing to do with it. That's a direct quote. The Constitution had nothing to do with it. I could see him going back to that and reversing it. But I, I, I hope you're right. Let's, it's too depressing to talk about. So let's just hope you're right and move, mm. and, and move on from this. Um, and there is, of course, always more depressing issues to talk about when it comes to LGBTQ rights, especially when it comes to religion. So there's a website designer case that is coming mm. to the Supreme Court. Can you tell people what that's about, what your take yeah. on it is and all that? Well, that's where I think, um, you know, to the extent that's part of wrapped up in a in a right to same sex marriage, where there is vulnerability and where the court will chip away at it. So a few years ago, most of your listeners probably know about the baker in mm -hmm. Colorado, uh, Jack Phillips, who refused to do a cake for a same sex marriage. He was out of compliance, therefore, with a state law that said you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. And um, Phillips and his lawyers made the sort of very interesting and adventuresome argument that uh, he spoke through his cakes, that his cakes represented speech, that he was in a sense an arbiter of the legitimacy of the wedding, that when he provided a cake, he was giving it his endorsement. And if he were forced to do that, it would violate his conscience. It would violate his right to not speak things he didn't believe and religion now, too and religion too and religion but 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 because until the court overrules employment division versus smith which for the for the non-lawyers is is the opinion that says most religious free exercise challenges only get low level scrutiny it's interesting to see how religious right litigators have been increasing increasingly recasting those arguments as as speech arguments as compelled speech arguments. So um, Jack Phillips lost as uh, Eugene Volek and um, uh, 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 another law professor wrote in, in an amicus brief, uh, Dale Carpenter wrote an amicus brief, you know, no one goes to a wedding and says, looks at the cake and says, the baker has blessed this wedding. <laughs> the court ended up resolving that case on very narrow grounds, and they avoided taking on those major First Amendment. Steve, can we pause there for a minute? I'm sorry. I, I think it's important for the audience, the listeners to understand, the court did duck the big issues. It found some, right. what it said was some bias on administrators right. in the lower courts. My view on that is Justice Kennedy, who was the only vote that mattered, couldn't figure out what he wanted to do. So he basically wrote the least impactful opinion mm -hmm. that he could. 
based, by the way, in my opinion, on demonstrably false facts. But whatever. Yeah, I, I, I think that's plausible. So, but uh, but in that case, the court was being asked to decide, uh, you know, is is this kind of you know when you force a merchant to provide a cake for a wedding that they don't believe in, is that speech? Is that essentially the government commandeering or compelling your speech? So. The case that the court will hear this fall um, involves a, a, a website designer who doesn't want to have to design websites for same-sex weddings. You know, right off the bat, the idea that she's engaged in that kind of creative activity of website design makes the argument about the First Amendment and speech and expression a little more plausible than a cake. I agree. Um, but, you know, you could still say, but she still does it for hire. She's still, you know, it's still a commercial product at the end of the day. She's not doing it for her own gratification or expression. She's doing it for others. Well, the Court of Appeals in that case actually said, yes, this is compelling her speech. Uh, we agree that, you know, her speech has in some sense been commandeered or compelled when she is required by a non-discrimination law to provide services to a same-sex wedding and a same-sex couple. Now, under the First Amendment, let's figure out if that meets strict scrutiny. Let's let's figure out if, even if we say it is compelled speech, that it is still permissible for the law to do that. And the Court of Appeals said it was. And the Court of Appeals went further and said there is a right to that web designer's specific services that it's not enough to say, well, there are probably other people you could go to to design your wedding uh, site. The Court of Appeals basically said, no, it's like if you want her services, you are entitled to them. And the availability of products in the marketplace and principles of non-discrimination, all of that essentially overcome and provide sufficient reasons for burdening her First Amendment rights. I think that's something that's very difficult to see um, a majority of the Supreme of this Supreme Court agreeing with getting its mind around again. Not only do you begin from with a kind of service that seems more naturally expressive and in the territory of free speech, but it's coming up from a court that said, "Yeah, it's compelled speech." Yes, but now it's it still passes muster under the First Amendment because it meets a it it meets strict scrutiny. I I, I don't see uh, I I. I I don't see that case coming out in a good way. And there's there's no religious there's no religion issue in the case, right? Well, well, I think there is. I mean, her her. I, I don't I don't. Think, no, I think I'm they granted sure. cert just on speech. Yeah, I don't think there's a free exercise yeah. claim, but but clearly she is motivated by her religious right. belief. That's the only reason she's represented by the same lawyers who represented Jack Phillips, right. the Alliance Defending Freedom. Again, they they have taken, you know, this is legal innovation. I give them credit. They have taken what are, you know, really purely arguments about the exercise of religion and found a way to make them in the language of First Amendment speech doctrine. So, Steve, I, so from the very second that Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is the case you referred to earlier, became a public thing. I, I, um, I've written about it. I, I actually eventually wrote a column for Slate, I think it was, that said Colorado needs to drop this case because they're going to lose on remand. And, and then... I'm not saying it's because of my column, and I'm sure it wasn't, but two days later they dropped the case, um, which was yeah. good because they were going to lose and lose badly. So here's where I'm I, – I am just so conflicted about this and have it from the beginning, not in the religion part. Religion part is easy, you lose. They should lose – I don't want to go into that right now, but I, they have no free exercise claim, forget it. But on the, on the 
speech claim. Here's my problem. I'm a wedding singer, and I I have the license, whatever I need. Okay. I, I have. Hypothetical. Okay. No one wants to hear me sing ever I at any you, moment. This is and, a side hustle you have. Okay. No one ever wants to hear me sing. Okay. Um, I can guarantee that. Um, but I'm a wedding singer, and I get permission to do covers and Billy Joel songs and whatever. He's my favorite artist. Um, and I put my personal spin on it and all that. And I say, but I will not do. In, let's take the worst, the most obvious case: interracial <laughs> marriage. I won't do it. Or, 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 no, worse than that. I won't do black weddings. If, if you're both black, don't call me. I'm not doing your wedding in violation of a zillion laws, state and federal. I don't think the government can make me sing. And if the government can't make me sing I'm or write a poem, I'm not sure it can make me do a web design. I, 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 it can make me provide tables and provide forks and and provide electricity but when it, but yep. when we add expre- core expression into the mix i got to say i'm not sure I, I i actually think that's probably wrong once again i think you and i are in agreement about this so in addition to first year con law this past spring i taught um, a class on sexual sexual orientation, gender identity, and the law. Mm-hmm. And so we had a chance to delve into these issues and you know in, in a detailed way. And I had 45 terrific students. Um, and, and we spent a lot of time on this, on, on, on exactly that issue. Okay, the cake with no decorations or message on it, the cake with a decoration right. or message on it, is that different? The guy who engraves the wedding rings, the limo driver, the florist, the singer, the photographer in her studio, the photographer at the wedding. These are exactly the kinds of, you know, law professor hypotheticals. Okay, let's change the facts and see if your views are the same uh, that, 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 you know, th- th- these cases present. And, and I, I agree with you. I think there is a line. It, it's, it's not easy to articulate. It's almost more a sort of gut instinct or I know it when I see it when something is too close to either compelling speech or forcing you to participate in in a ceremony and a ritual that that violates your conscience you know, I showed a video of, of a guy of a wedding singer you know <laughs> serenading the couple at their reception and I asked my students I said you're telling me that you know the government could force him to do that could force him to put the kind of meaning into his voice and his words and his performance that are required. And, you know, I had a few holdout students who said, yep, government can do it. I, you know, I think they're just so deeply committed to the idea. But, um, but I, I, I do think that those kinds of, um, those kinds of fine distinction, I, I think there's a scale. Yeah. Um, and, and we can argue about whether the florist or the baker, where they fit into it, whether the web designer, I would still say if I had to make the argument, the web designer is different than the person who has to actually show up and participate right. at the ceremony. Right. You know, the practical question is, why would you want to patronize right. somebody who couldn't put their heart and soul into it? Right. Um, so there's also, you know, I also agree. I don't know if you've had D- uh, Doug Laycock on your on I your have podcast. not. Not yet. Doug Laycock, for, you know, for your non-professor audiences, you know, is is one of the leading religion scholars. But he's very big on this idea that. We, law needs to create space for both religious liberty and LGBT rights to to coexist. And I, you know, I, I tend to agree with him on that. I saw, you know, just recently Jack Phillips was 
the, the Colorado Baker Tom, had a complaint uh, filed uh, against him for refusing. Not, not Jeff. Um, Mike. Jack. Jack Phillips. Okay. The Baker. Yeah. Uh, had a complaint filed against him because he refused to do a cake for someone's gender transition. Ceremony. I saw that. I saw that. And, you know, that, it's like, you know, it, that's just trolling at yeah. that point. I agree. Uh, you know, you knew he wasn't going to do it. Like, why, you know, kind of like, why, you know, just to make the point? I mean, if, if that's the way we're going to use law, then, you know, there may come to be some validity to the critique from the religious right that this is an effort to just stamp out religious dissent. Uh, that's a great point. Um, Mike Dorff, who I blog with, um, as you know, um, and I think you've blogged once or twice for Mike, too. Um, I think I think I don't want to mischaracterize Mike, but I think he takes seriously the argument, at least. That the compelling is a compelling state interest in eradicating discrimination, and when you enter into the economic arena, even if you're expressing ideas, you subject yourself to um, to the law in that because of the compelling state interest in eradicating mm -hmm. discrimination against marginalized groups. I don't think that argument is in any way weak or silly or frivolous, um, but I can't get there all the way because I can't the making somebody show up piece makes no sense to me. Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. I agree. Um, I, I neglected to mention, we're gonna, okay, that end of that conversation, new conversation. You mentioned to me before we, we started talking that you're going to be visiting in Michigan, uh, next, University of Michigan, where you went to law school next, next spring. Um, yeah. And you're going to teach a class on free speech on, on campus, right, I think you said. Uh, campus speech and academic freedom is right. the title. Okay, yeah. so, I have yet to actually put it together, but I, I sort of know what I want to. So you have a PhD in political science. Um, Last year, I co-authored a piece with a political scientist from the University of Wisconsin, Howard Schwieber, um, on free speech on campus. And really, we, and because it was a co-authored piece, you know, we really had to check each other's ideas and we didn't agree on everything. And, and it was a great exercise for me to think about free speech in this, in this country. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to ask you about the law yet about this. Um, he, so, uh, as you, I think you know, I have a very European view of free speech, which 98% of law professors in America don't have. I mean, Brian mm -hmm. Leiter does. So my guest on, my next guest does have that view, but he's the only one, I think. He and I, there's two of us in the whole country. But even someone who accepts hook, line, and sinker, all of the Supreme Court's doctrine on free speech, what I am so worried about for our country is irrespective of the law, Co you know, forgetting coercion or compulsion or anything like that. College students today and graduate students, and this is a real, Georgia State doesn't have this problem yet. We may in the future, but Emory, where I you know, went to undergraduate and I live around the corner and where my wife teaches in the business school, Emory is having these issues left, right, and center of students who are simply intolerant of even hearing disgusting and despicable speakers. And I was raised, again, not with the law, but as a policy matter, let them speak so we can then say that's awful, that's terrible, don't, you know, don't follow these heinous Nazis or whoever. They don't want to do that. They want to block the speech. They don't want it anywhere near them. This really scares me as a society. Not does it scare you? It does. And I don't know if you watch Bill Maher's program. I, I watch Bill Maher all the time, yeah. But my views on on free speech and and sort of the the um, 
you know, the, 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 the uh, sensitivities of sort of millennials and Gen Zers. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of right there with Bill Maher. I agree with you. I am, you know, I am increasingly being, you know, I've always been because I originally wanted to be a journalist. I've always been a, you know, really, really strong believer in the First Amendment. I have to say my view in that old sort of John Milton, Areopagitica sort of view, let, you know, let truth and falsehood fight and truth <laughs> will always emerge the victor in the era of Fox News, right. in the era of, you know, the, the, the volume of misinformation and the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the uninformed citizenry we have. I'm sorry to say I am shaken in my faith in that principle that we can rely on that to still work. I, I guess for me, though, I draw a line for better or worse at the at the gates of the university to me because I've spent my whole life at a university, not just as a teacher, but as an administrator. And I was a student at, at this university where I am now. I think a university is a sort of sacred space. It needs to be a neutral ground. It needs to be a place where controversial ideas can be explored. Indiana University went to bat and defended Alfred Kinsey's academic freedom when right. he was doing things that were extremely controversial. So even if I am, you know, losing faith in that kind of theory of the First Amendment idea that uh, let truth and falsehood, you know, fight and truth will emerge, um, I, I still think a university is a different kind of space for the exchange of ideas, speech, research, teaching, and we can't afford to let go of that in the university space. So do you, so uh, I know you haven't started this project yet or you're, um, Howard and I discussed this at length and, and we punted on this issue I'm about to ask you about because there was so much else to talk about. So we, you know, it was a, but this, this issue I think is hard. What do you do with a college student at a public school who posts horrifically racist, sexist, terrible things, but, and maybe even through a university computer, but not on university time? You know, or university email, but not on university time. So, and, and it doesn't even affect, let's just say it doesn't, well, let's, let's, let's take two situations. One in which it's just an outlier who says terrible, crazy things. One person is upset and wants to punish them. Mm -hmm. Second hypo would be someone who writes something that really does cause um, academic distress in the university. In, in many ways, and, and, and gets in, and gets in the way of the pedagogical mission, but did it on the internet away from the university. What do we do with yep. those two things? I think the the situation, the the second one, presents a stronger case for involvement, where where objectively it is causing disruption right. and interfering with the university's ability to do its job. Now, a lot of that can be pretextual, a lot of that can be speculation and hyped up, but if it is objectively affecting the right of the ability of somebody to pursue an education or for the university to pursue its academic mission, I think there's a stronger case there. Where it doesn't, um, I think there is no case. I was actually involved in a situation like this. So several years ago, we had a graduate student in, in one of our units here at, at IU in the media school who was accused of having posted essentially a, a, a threat, some threatening words. It wouldn't have qualified as a true threat under First Amendment law, but some threatening words on a website directed at someone, a, a Muslim person in another country. Um, this person, the, 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 the dean found out about the post, and this person essentially was fired from his position as an associate instructor, which meant essentially his graduate education was over. I chaired the mediation committee 
And, and, and our committee actually recommended that the student get his job back. Our view was even assuming he did write those words that there, he, he didn't write them on a university computer on university time, there was no evidence anyone at the university had ever read or known about them right. until they were brought you know, to the attention anonymously of his dean. And, and our view was not a sufficient connection to the university's business to punish him. Now, the provost uh, didn't agree with that and upheld the dean's decision to fire the student. But that gives you some indication, I think, of where I would stand personally in that situation. I think these issues are so hard. I, I think the Supreme Court got, I, I think it's really hard. I'm not, this is not a case I criticize with the venom that I usually do. But the high school cheerleader who went home um, and yeah. said F the cheerleading squad and a couple other things. Um, I think the court got that one wrong because when she signed up for the team, she said she would not engage in any activity that is that would disrupt the unity of the team. And going home and writing F the team and a couple other things, yeah. I, you know, if, if she had said that at, on school property, there's no question she could have been kicked off the team. The fact that I don't well, think. Well, was it the point, though, that she said that after she was kicked off the team or hadn't made the team? So No, what, what, well, what it was was she wanted to be on varsity and they put her on junior okay. varsity. But, okay. But then they All kicked right. her off junior varsity against her will. So I didn't I, I, I didn't remember that particular nuance yes. where she had essentially yes. signed a sort of non-disparagement yes. agreement yes. or something like that. If she did, then that might change the situation for me. My recollection of the facts of that case was simply that that may have fallen more into the category where, um, you know, uh, you know, was this did this seriously disrupt? No, it didn't. Did it I don't school no. to shut down or anybody right. to lose a, a, a day or, or even an hour of instructional time. No. But, you know, educators at all levels, I think, are very good at trumping up the and, and, and exaggerating and, and, and people just take it on faith that anything that upsets somebody disrupts the academic environment. I think we need to push back against that idea. So that's what I remember thinking about that case was the school's position was a sort of classic example of people, you know, trumping up the idea that this was disruptive simply because some faculty and students didn't like it. Well, we have to disagree on something. So we're going to disagree on this. Okay. Um, okay. I, I agree with you that school administrators do that. I, I think the material disruption standard which is kind of the test for this kind of thing, does not apply to like basketball teams. Like In other words, a basketball team can kick off a basketball player for behavior that is less than material disruption, I think. Mm -hmm. And if that's true for basketball, I obviously think it's equally true for cheerleading. But there's a distinction between being kicked off and being punished, right? So so yes, if you if you don't uphold the rules of the team, you yeah. get kicked off the team. But that's different than being suspended or expelled or something like that, which is I think what she suffered. Uh, her only punishment the, was she couldn't yeah, be on the. Um, no, I think her only punishment was she couldn't be on the the junior varsity cheerleader team. Okay. Yeah, and, and I want to make a point about that because I I think the court does this a lot, which when we're running out of time, so this is going to lead me to my last question for you. But the the the. I have a bankruptcy professor friend here, J Professor Jack Williams, um, who oh. we started the same day in 1991. This is our respective 31st years in legal academia. Um, and Jack's a money guy. You know, Jack's bankruptcy and money and transactions and all that. And that's the last yeah. thing I am. And he always says to me, um, when the court hears bank, when the Supreme Court hears bankruptcy cases, it gets the facts wrong every time. Doesn't care about facts. Makes up its own facts. And I think there's a lot of that in constitutional law. 
And I think this is a case is a splendid example of that. The, the court just ignored some key facts here mm-hmm. that you've just agreed with me. I think if, if they hadn't, might have made a difference even in how you think about the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Justice Kennedy was famous, I think, for distorting facts in a number of different cases I could, I, I, I could talk about. Um, oh, yeah. So I think what the court was trying to do in this cheerleader case was set some broad parameters, you know, which is un- admittedly a very hard issue in a case where the facts didn't fit. Which in my yeah, my recollection of that too is everybody thought Justice Breyer's opinion didn't, you know, provide all that much guidance about anything. Right. That it and that's just a bit of a and that's true, but that's like Ten Commandments, you know, same thing. Uh, that's Ten Commandments. Yeah. So I want to talk about legal realism for one second. Um are you a legal realist? So, you know, um I I think, you know, my position has been I have always resisted the idea. Like like it's not that I don't understand the argument that you and Mark Tushnet and others have made. I, I think it's just, you know, it, it's like, no, no, no. I have to, like, shut my eyes, hear <laughs> no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. I can't bring myself to, to uh, you know, to acknowledging that, because if I do, then what's left? I didn't get in the, into this game to teach law as politics. I got into this to teach law as law, and I, I am still a litigator at heart. And so that means I believe that precedent and reasoning and doctrine and facts are important. And so I think that's always kept me from getting on board uh, the same bus that you and Mark and, and some others are on. But, you know, with this um, with this group of justices at the <laughs> Supreme Court, I think that's getting harder and harder. But, um, you know, I don't know that it's going to change all that, that it still affects the way I teach con law. I mean, maybe when I teach my seminar on constitutional interpretation, but when I teach first year con law, you know, I still assume these are students who are going to be working at law firms or attorney general's offices where they're actually going to have to litigate constitutional questions in district courts, and maybe courts of appeal. So aside from the legitimacy and the merits of how the court goes about doing its work, um, it's still providing cases that are going to be important that students are going to know. I have to know how to work well. And so I think that's why I still remain a doctrinalist, at least as a teacher, uh, because I am teaching these students what they're going to need to know when they're, you know, defending against a dormant commerce clause claim, when they're working in the Indiana attorney general's office, or when they're making an equal protection claim representing a client who's been discriminated against. So I guess I'm, you know, to some extent, dodging your question by saying, well, you know, I, I I still think it doesn't take away from the fact that that in teaching first year con law, I need to give my students not just the ability, sure, to critique cases and be able to identify the weak points in their reasoning, but to be able to go out and apply um, those principles from these cases in their day to day legal practices. So I want to push back a little bit with two quick stories, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, um and get your reaction to them. The first one has just happened yesterday. Sandy Levinson, who was one of the legends of constitutional law uh, and political science and was one, of, was one of my early guests on this podcast. I was grateful to him for that. Um, Sandy wrote, we have, a, we have a nerdy con law list. And Sandy, just yet last night, wrote that he was at a conference last weekend, met a, he wouldn't identify the person, but said a very famous, consti- a very famous law professor who said they stopped teaching con law after Heller because they could no longer take it in good faith. My friend Chris Sprigman at NYU, who's really an IP guy, 
an antitrust guy and really smart. Taught con law for a while, gave it up, said, I, I can't teach a, an area of law where the court just makes stuff up. He used a different word for that. Um, I won't curse on this podcast because Georgia State <laughs> sponsors it. Um, and so the, before I get to my last thing, what I want to ask you is um, my – what I'm I'm considered to be a hardcore legal realist, but I'm not the same as Mark Tushnet or, or Duncan Kennedy or the famous critical legal scholars who are making society-wide indictments about the rule of law. That's not me. I am just yeah. talking about one institution. I, yeah. I think lower court judges, at least prior to the Trump era and the Fifth Circuit, most and, and the Ninth Circuit to some degree, most lower court judges I know personally, in good faith, try to do what the law requires. And they do yeah, that right. seriously. And, 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 and again, you know, there are bad apples, but that's most of them. But that's only because they're bound by precedent, Steve. If they weren't bound by precedent, they would have a lot more freedom and liberty mm-hmm. because the Supreme Court is not bound by precedent. And we know disregards precedent flagrantly and always has going back mm-hmm. to the 1870s. Um, I, I think my critique of the court is simply we have to teach the students to talk the talk and to learn the doctrine for the bar exam. But mm-hmm. as scholars wearing that, that's our teaching hat. I teach the same, yeah. exactly the same way you do, I think. But in my scholar hat, I can't ignore this institution has always been what Erwin Chemerinsky said it was 25 years ago, um, the aggregate of the value preferences of the justices. And, and that's what it was in 1857, 1880s, 1920s, and today. Do you disagree with that, that modified legal well, realism? Um, no, I don't. And, and, you know, I've had my own kind of crisis of conscience <laughs> and, and since, the, since the Alito opinion came out, like, you know, yeah. How am I going to explain something like this to my students next year when, yeah. you know, when I'm teaching this in Michigan? But, you know, look, I mean, circling back to Roe, uh, I, I, don't, I, I assume you agree with it. I mean, the same, and you know, that's it. isn't that basically Alito's indictment of Roe, that this was just the, the value preferences of seven justices at the time? Even my students, you know, in con law who are deeply personally committed to reproductive choice, you know, igno- forthrightly acknowledge once you sort of open their eyes to it, just how how weak the legal reasoning. But that's is. true for hundreds of cases, Steve. I don't think Rose an outlier. No. Seminole no, tribe, no, no. Seminole tribe is just as bad. Prince is just as bad. No. Hell is just yeah, as I, bad. I'm just circling back to it because it was you know our initial. Yeah. It's kind of our big topic of yeah. Uh, of, yeah. The, uh, of the moment here. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, no, I you know I I, I I think increasingly I don't disagree with you. I've just been blinded by the fact that. You know, I, I've, I've been a bit of a judicial supremacist, you know, for most of my life. And sure. one of those people who would, you know, like instinctively trust judges before I would trust legislators in most states anyway, right. um, because of, you know, education and calm reflection and all of that stuff. And I think, you know, recent developments are pushing me away from that and closer to you. Fair enough. Um, one last question that's that's personal to both you and me. Um, I think we share this. Although my situation is a little different. So I live and teach in an incredibly blue city in an mm-hmm. incredible in what has traditionally been a red state. Now, that's changing in Georgia, obviously. But still, yep. our governor and our legislature, you know, our Republicans and, and, and our legislature especially is very conservative. I think Bloomington's pretty blue, right? But Indiana. Oh, yeah. oh totally. Yeah. yeah. But Indiana is extremely red. You know, Indiana isn't as crazy as Texas and Florida, right. uh, you know, which are in this race for extreme craziness. 
Uh, you know, there's definitely a supermajority of very conservative Republicans in the legislature, but you know, it's it's moderated a little bit by the fact we have a more moderate Republican as a governor who actually vetoed the transgender athletes bill. Now they're trying to override that veto. We'll see. But, you know, Indiana actually never passed a state constitutional mini DOMA against same sex marriage. Wow. It passed a statute, but yeah. not a mini DOMA. I point that out. It, 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 it you know, dodged it, 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 it tried, but never succeeded at restricting gay and lesbian adoptions for example so sure it's a it's a red state and it and we get exa- you know teaching con law and, and pence examples. was pretty bad and, and pence was pretty bad yeah. yeah and 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 um but uh, uh you know because i know he's he's a great friend of yours i uh, <laughs> when i teach when when i know posner when i get to teach judge posner's yeah. opinion striking down indiana's merit anti-marriage it's a great law, opinion I let the students just savor it, yeah. and I play audio excerpts. And um, and 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 uh, you know, I have to interrupt, just... Steve, because I want the record to reflect that I did not mention Posner. You did, because normally I I'm. Yeah. I want the record to reflect that. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, but 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 I I have a lot of fun teaching that opinion because also it, again it gives insight into how the states. Uh, like Indiana, but others concocted these arguments trying to defend these laws as well. But, um, you know, so far, thankfully, the state really doesn't mess with the university all that much, as far as I can tell. And so, unlike so many other states, there don't seem to be any imminent attacks or threats to things like tenure or academic freedom. But I think, unfortunately, we're realizing that you can't, you just can't take it as fact, as you can't just assume that those things are safe in the long and, run. And, and you, don't self-cen- you, you don't self-censor, do you? Don't, don't what? I'm Sel- self-censor and fear of retribution. I don't, yeah. no. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm probably fairly notorious yes. on my campus for, for saying exactly what I think and, yeah. and, and, and assuming that I'll have the protections of tenure. And so far, again, I haven't been proven wrong on that. Well, I just want to say we can't get into it on this podcast, but um, Steve has been very... You all can read this. Steve will mention where you can read it in a second. Um, there was a big to-do about the president of, of his university, and, and Steve was played the role of investigative journalist in all of this. If we had another hour, I would ask you all about it. Um, where can people go to read about that story, Steve? Because it's really important. It's, uh, it's on Medium.com, and I think if you just Google something like Medium.com, Steve Sanders, okay. Indiana University president, uh, it, it'll bring it up. It's quite the story, and it shows how... It shows two things. It shows um, what kind of character Steve has, which is immense and which I've always respected. Um, and it shows how brave you are, because I think a lot of people would have, including me, would have been nervous about getting involved in that. Can I call it a fiasco? Maybe that's too strong. Whatever you want to call it, uh, the way you did and the way you wrote about it as a journalist. I People sh- Google Steve Sanders, Indiana president, um, but also Google Steve Sanders and all of his work, because it is tr- tremendous work. I've known you for a long time. Um, I've learned a lot from you over the years, Stephen. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, my friend. I am just so honored and delighted to be a part of this conversation. The conversation flew by as I knew it would. We could do another hour. Thanks again, Steve. All right. Thanks, Eric.